Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Bellingham, Washington is Kane McGladry. Kane is field CISO or Hyperproof. And today we're going to be talking about something unusual, which is the application of the Graham Leach Bliley Act for organizations outside of banking. Uh, first, Kane, thank you for taking time away from your day to talk to us today. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show today, Adam. Really excited about this and uh, about the topic. Me too, because it's it's a different one than we usually address. And, and, and let me just start by asking sort of the why question. You know, Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act is typically addressed in the context of banking. Am I right in assuming that there's more to it than that and that other industries fall under it? There will be more industries falling under it. Actually, that date was pushed back. So kind of June of next year, um, a number of non-banking institutions are going to be covered by GLBA. And those could include things like um, higher education institutions, like a college or a university that administers federal student aid, but also, and also companies that are alternative lenders. And then there's a category called... Um, finders. You don't see me doing the air quotes here, but they're called finders. Uh, and those are companies that really offer third-party financing. So for example, if you've got a retailer, like a furniture store, for example, uh, if they are extending credit to customers, they'll be covered, as well as companies like a car dealership. If they use a third-party lender, they're also going to be covered under GLBA starting in June of next year. Interesting. Um, it's quite the expansion. Now, what is the act traditionally uh, required out of organizations? So GLBA is an interesting one because it's quite old. It, uh, it passed back in 1999. And uh, at the time, it was really intended to modernize the financial industry. Um, in 2003, they put together something called the safeguards rule. And the safeguards rule is where you know, a lot of people really started to get interested because it was intended to require financial institutions, banks at the time, to establish specific controls to keep their customers' um, personal data safe. And that included having uh, a written information security program, as well as so they'd have to develop it, they'd have to implement it, they'd actually have to do ongoing maintenance of it. And it included um, administrative controls, technical controls, as well as physical controls. The other thing that's interesting about the act, um, the initial version was about a thousand words, uh, which might seem like a lot, but the updated version now of uh, at least the safeguards rule is about 5,000 words. So there's definitely been an expansion. Mm. Uh, but from a consumer perspective, the other thing is this is something we've all been living with. Like, I think we all probably have seen a, a GLBA disclosure form from your bank or from your lender uh, on an annualized basis. I suspect most of us are doing the same thing with it and just, you know, binning it into the recycling uh, or the shredder as appropriate. But that's that's really been the, uh, the the intent of it over the long term was to and do some initial consumer protections around their financial data. Now you, you talked about this new safeguards, which I think comes out of the FTC, uh, if I recall correctly mm -hmm. from some of the homework I did to prepare for this. What are they specifically asking for, and by when? So the date got pushed back. It was supposed to be this month, uh, just for 
historical context here, podcast, right? Uh, so it's currently December 2022, uh, and the date got pushed back to uh, June of 2023. And the reason why is that some companies might not have quite got the hint, and they might have been, oh, I don't know, lagging a li little bit behind. Um, and the specific requirements, uh, there's nine of them that have to appear in the information security plan for a company that's covered under GLBA. Uh, and the first one really is to have a qualified individual, and that's their terminology, not mine, uh, and they're responsible to oversee and to implement and to enforce the information security program, or information security plan, I should say. Uh, and, and realistically, that could be a third party, like if you've got a managed security services provider or um, uh, a managed security provider, or alternatively, you could have a direct hire, somebody who's like a manager of information security, director of security, CISO, what have you. Um, so that's number one. First of all, you just have somebody, somebody in charge. Um, the rest of these are going to seem awfully familiar. Um, so one of them is you have to do a periodic cybersecurity risk assessment. Um, GLBA is still using the word periodic, whereas other organizations like um, New York Department of Finance is requiring annual. And I believe the SEC is already moving in that direction, too. Uh, but this one's still periodic. So, you know, when you get around to it, you should do a, a risk assessment. And then to implement um, specific cybersecurity controls that manage those risks, which, again, that makes sense. If you have a risk of phishing, for example, it would be favored if you had a way of training your employees to maybe not click on that link and perhaps to have some kind of detection of phishing links coming in your email. Um, another requirement, and this one's an existing requirement for the banks, but for the known non-financial institutions, this will feel a little newish, um, which is documenting who's got access to customer information. Uh, and that includes like, where are those data stored? And then making sure, well, if you're storing it, you should be encrypting it. And then you should also assess the risk of the applications that have got access to those data, as well as doing a secure disposition, because as we've seen, like you, even though the tendency tends to be pack rats, like we'll keep all these data forever. Um, that's not good for consumers. It's not good for businesses. Ultimately, it's very good for threat actors who would sure like to steal that. But if you delete it, they can't steal it. Um, and then after that, so we, we've got those are kind of the, the, the setup on an ongoing basis then companies have to test that those controls are working, right? So you're going to go spend money, you're going to dedicate some resources, some staff, and be favored if you could figure out, did that actually work? Uh, and then train your staff about cybersecurity. And then monitor your, uh, your service providers. So if you've got uh, if you're participating in the supply chain, like literally everyone else, you should be keeping an eye on their cybersecurity risk. Uh, and then the next one is, is kind of interesting because um, it requires keeping the program up to date. And I like that they included this language because there's been a tendency in non-regulated industries to treat cybersecurity like, oh, it's a project. We did it. We're done. We don't have to do this anymore. We checked the box. And that's very much the intent of the language to keep the program up to date. After that, um, having a written incident response plan. So that's for when something inevitably goes wrong, that you actually have a plan to um, deal with it. And then finally, uh, report on all of the above. So everything from having the plan, having the person, having the training, having the testing, having those technical and administrative and, and physical controls. If your company has a board, um, they should expect to receive a report on that on an annual basis. 
there's a lot there. And, and one of the comments you made, uh, it's just good advice in general when it comes to data security, that it's, it's not something where you can set it and forget it, uh, that you have to stay on top of it. But as you're describing that, a lot of it seems similar to what organizations have been doing to comply with GDPR uh, or, or are, would be considered sort of normal good practices for data security. Mm -hmm. uh, things such as risk assessment, getting an inventory. Um, are there places where the requirements are more complex than they look? You know, you're right. This is this is going to feel similar to um, privacy laws, for example, that require an opt-out, like a CCPA, for example. They've got some similar ideas in there. Um, and I think one of the, the first things that we've both covered now, like the mistake is treating this like it's a policy document, like it's something you write, you put in a binder, you put on a shelf, and then you summarily ignore. And when the auditors roll around, you just pop out the binder and say, look, we've got the words, now go away. Um, that's not really the intent of modern cybersecurity. It's not a one and done. This is something that has to be performed on a regular basis and also maintained on a regular basis. Um, a second level of complication is there's a requirement now to measure your control effectiveness. And um, that's actually a little more complicated than it seems, at least for these new, less regulated industries that are suddenly going to find themselves subject to GLBA, uh, because, you know, that, that's going to imply your internal assessment team is going to be asking for proof of compliance on a regular basis from the people who are operating those controls. And that, that might feel unfamiliar, and it also might lead to some cultural friction because the people who are operating those controls, typically like <laughs> responding to the internal assessment team is like number, well, it's the last item on their list actually of the 11 billion other things they have to do in their given day. Um, that's just not a priority for them, historically speaking. And the other one that I see realistically is I see a lot of paper tigers in incident response plans. And what I mean by that is it looks really good on paper. It looks impressive, um, but it doesn't actually work in practice. And so something that companies, and this is not in GLBA, but something companies with incident response plans should just do in general is do a tabletop of those on an annual basis to ensure like, does this actually work? Does this make sense? Like, let's talk through this. Let's pretend that a bad thing has happened. Um, and then let's work through it as a team and identify those areas where it doesn't work because you do not want to be called out of, you know, out of bed at 2 a.m. because something bad has happened to pull out the incident response plan and find out that the phone call tree is out of date and the systems that it's referring to were retired five years ago, uh, which mm. disappointingly still happens. Yeah, and it's good always running through those plans. And one thing I learned years ago from actually when I worked in advertising and a banking client was it's also good to keep bringing in new people as you do that. Um, mm -hmm. My client, I remember the bank had a plan in case it wasn't an L.A. bank uh, in case of earthquake and they had backup facilities and everything. But uh, she noticed it was on the other side of the river and the bridges would all be closed for safety <laughs> checks mm -hmm. after a major quake. So you couldn't get to them. Um, and again, it was only because somebody knew was looking and, and was there to ask the question that it helps. So finally, for companies with an existing data security effort, where should they start uh, in their efforts to be in compliance with the new rules? 
Well, first of all, say I hope they're not starting today because there's only six months left on the clock right now in December, thinking of it. Um, hopefully this is something that they already have in flight and hopefully data security and, and is not a new topic to folks. Um, and I find that having worked with a lot of companies, most companies know which regulations they have to comply with. Uh, and they also know which requirements specifically they're going to have to deal with. And the other thing they know is which data they have, generally speaking. Um, so it, it starts with a classic gap analysis, right? And, and it's a case of mapping what you know you need. Like here are the requirements, here are the controls that I specifically will need proof of. And then try and go find all of the pieces of proof that are going to satisfy preferably multiple requirements uh, or specific controls that you have to have proof of. Um, where companies can can struggle a bit though and where they can save some time is you know noting down those pieces of proof as you find them specifically like where was that file stored what was the file name like where do i get a copy of this again because you're going to need that that same policy document or that same procedure document or that same way of getting a screenshot you're going to need that again next year and the year after that and so if you note it down um, it'll really materially reduce the second time that you have to go through an internal assessment. Um, and also in the case of policy documents, if they have a requirement that a senior manager or senior director or somebody with a signatory authority signs off on it, it would be favored if you actually remembered both where the live version is as well as the signatory version. Um, so just keep track of that. And then again, as we close out the gap analysis, as companies find they have deficiencies, um, that could result in findings. It's really a case of choosing a reputable cybersecurity framework that has examples of those controls that can map directly into GLBA. Um, so that would be something like the Center for Internet Security's Critical Security Controls really works well for um, organizations that don't do a lot of business with the federal government. Um, alternatively, if you do a lot of business with the federal government, you'd probably want to look at NIST. Um, because in those cases, the experts have already figured out, like, how would you address this control deficiency most effectively? And often we'll have examples of like, here's what works, here's what doesn't work, and here's what a satisfactory piece of proof that you could test for would look for. So you're, you know, you're already building with the, with the eventual audit in mind. And, you know, as we've seen with the proliferation of so many standards out there, you know, audits when it comes to data security are inevitable. Mm -hmm. Well, Kane, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us today. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <laughs>